21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Okay, so Chris, what is the consumer packaged goods industry or CPG and what is the operating, what is its operating environment? Sure, sure. No, it's, it's actually a great question because um, the, the old school definitions of CPG have actually kind of been morphed and changed as this new wave of companies has, has emerged. So, um, and a lot of people use the terms for a lot of different things. So, um, yeah, it's actually hard to describe because people use it to describe so many different things, but most of the time consumer goods um, are broken down into a few different groups. Um, there's hard lines, which are like hard manufactured goods, soft lines, which tend to be like apparel things with sizes and colorways. And then there's consumer packaged goods, which tend to be food, beverage related. Um, and so that's the world that we tend to, to work in. Um, in probably the last 10 years, people have actually started to call them a couple different other things like fast moving consumer goods because they tend to be lower ASP. Um, so FMCG is an acronym you might see out there. The other acronym or the other term that people might use is consumables. Because the world tends to be low price, repeat purchase driven business models um, that can span anything from grocery, food and beverage, cleaning products, skincare products, beauty products, supplement, baby, pet, um, where it actually, they all kind of tend to be the same thing. And so um, the, the interesting thing is the most, there's this new wave of startups, mostly internet-based startups that have um, done, that, that have created consumer businesses built to be sold online. And this is something that's pretty new, right? There weren't that many of these um, 10 years ago. Probably 10 years ago was the first wave of consumer startups, the ones that everyone knows, like Casper mattresses, Warby Parker, eyeglasses, goods that you used to have to go to retail, then we were all of a sudden going in store. And so there's this wave of consumer startups um, they often style themselves as DTC, direct to consumer, because they re recognize that the term CPG doesn't always apply if you're selling like a, a you know nice piece of furniture that's internet friendly, right? It's actually technically a little bit different. So we kind of span both of these worlds. CPG for sure. Um, there's areas of CPG we can't do. It's a lot harder to do, or or we do less, which are like temperature controlled goods. Um, or frozen goods, so stuff that's in a fridge or a microwave or fresh that spoils is pretty tough to do. Um, mail, we can we do some, but not very much. And then frozen or shocked as well. All of the above. All of the we've we've kind of tried it all, some to our uh, to our own detriment. But it's hard. It, it, it's probably hard. It's very difficult. And so, like, yeah, we those parts of CPG we can't necessarily do. And then we do some DTC that isn't just conventional CBG. What kind of services does your company provide 
for CPG firms and new wave startups? Full end-to-end value chain management. Everything from we will help you think about what product you need to sell because oftentimes you can't just sell one can online. You got to sell a case of them and maybe it's 10, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 20. Um, And then we'll help you with supply chain, packaging, labeling, um, and then pricing and margin management to really understand how you should price your products um, relative to competitors, relative to your own uh, profitability and relative to other channels. And then we run the full digital as well. So we'll help build your Amazon pages. We'll um, design the content, we'll run the SEO and then do continuous performance management alongside running all of the advertising. So yeah, it ends up, ends up being a lot of things, but uh, our, our niche is low price repeat purchase consumables. And the bulk of our clients have been um, better for you in some way. So tend to be stuff that that you could imagine fitting in at a Whole Foods. Um, some of our some of our clients that um, folks might know, we work with Justin's Nut Butters, um, with Pop Chips, um, Birch Bender's Pancake Mixes, and then some of the, I can kind of consider that like first wave uh, better for you, like Lily's Chocolates and so forth. And then also with some newer brands that are more internet native. So Magic Spoon Cereal, Kettle and Fire, the Bone Broth Company, Starface, the um, acne patch company that's um, very Gen Z focused. Uh, what part does AI play in this industry? Is it uh, employed for pricing or content marketing purposes? I mean, if, if at all. Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Um, and I'm going I'm to say yes and no, because there's a couple applications that you could use it and then more that you can't. So in terms of advanced AI, um, for most marketing, it doesn't make a ton of sense because in our world, our world is a um, is a world of brevity. Like you need to get your message across in two words, four words, ten words. That's not something that AI optimizes quite yet. Like and and like like word economy is very different when you're doing like advertising type stuff or SEO O type stuff, um, where you're trying to understand. It's like a, it's just a totally different training set. We're not actually trying to speak English. We're trying to speak like this pseudo English that gets message and value across the board really quickly. So, so nothing directly related with that. Now, that said, in our world, um, it's not something our team has done yet, but, but I've always wanted to, is uh, the world of, um, in the world of SEO and affiliate marketing, there are a lot of, um, it gets, kind of gets tossed around with like click farming and stuff like that, is people make how-to guides or descriptive articles written by AI. It's actually quite widespread. Oftentimes, um, yeah, if, if there's like a, a like a kind of a funny written guide on a very sub niche of a product category, for example, often those are written by AI and, and what they help you do is get a lot of backlinks and improve your Google SEO. Um, we haven't, you can also use these to drive potentially, and I know there's a few companies out there working on this, you can use it to drive affiliate marketing to other consumer sites. Um, an example of this is you could write a really good top 10 ranking, like 10 best sparkling water, and then have the AI write about the different product attributes and everything. And, and like, it'd be pretty good. 
and those rankings and those types of lists do really well on SEO. And then you could do direct links to the commerce sites, whether it's Amazon or your website. There are people doing that. It's pretty new. I love it. It's it's um, and and like I think it, it's actually kind of captures AI and what I think is the best spirit of it. Is it um, it's an amplifier of human thought. Like if you really want the article to be good, you probably have to edit it. Right. Like if you're if you're if you're a natural marketer, you're going to be like, OK, let's see the performance. I'm going to tweak these things and make the performance even better. And like that's the best use of AI. Um, so those are the cases in our world where AI is relevant. Great, great question. Not something I, I talk about a lot, but I have um, a couple times. Tell me about your journey into the e-commerce, uh, CPG industries. What inspired you to enter these fields? Yeah, it was um, it really was my my co-founder. Uh, he had built the first I mean, so, so my background, I, I spent most of my career as a consultant at McKinsey. Um, and so worked for very large corporations, mostly consumer facing, mostly marketing and sales, but a lot of different categories, cars, you know, cable, uh, contact lenses, education. So, you know, pretty big company stuff. Um, and my co-founder who I knew in college, he had built the first Amazon team at GE in their consumer electronics division. He actually, you know, went to leadership and said, hey, we need to take Amazon seriously. This was maybe close to 10 years ago and built that into a really big business. Um, he got to the point where he said, okay, I've sold enough extension cords to last a lifetime. I really care about natural, better for you products. And he had a deep uh, knowledge base in that too. And so started taking on a couple clients and then he called me up and said, hey, you, must, you know something about consulting, right? And uh, Cardigraph was born. And so it's been about five years now that uh, we've, we've been getting into it. And yeah, largely just started on the, first day with him and and tried to learn. I mean, one of the best skills you learn as a consultant is how to learn and how to research and figure out a topic and get smarter at it. And so after five years of that, I've gotten to know it uh, pretty well. What specific transformation happened in the last, let's say, five years of, of your journey? Have you evolved as a person? Yeah, I mean, uh, tremendously, uh, a few a few ways. I think one, um, being in the seat of an entrepreneur is, is quite different than being at like a professional services organization. And so kind of especially big consulting company that you work right, for. Right, right, right. Completely different story. You're, 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 the expectations are really high in that role, but the, your lane is pretty narrow. And you had different kind of supports, of course. You, yeah, exactly. You have different kind of support. So that, that's, that's one area. And I think um, in a big part, being a leader of an organization has been um, a pretty big transformation. And um, I, think, I think that's something that pretty much any entrepreneur will tell you. I'd say the topics that I had to get better at was one, um, fundamentally understanding performance marketing and advertising. It's not something that, um, I mean, large, large consulting firms don't understand uh, technology, basically. They're, they, they serve the incumbents and they help them say like, what is relevant to me? What do I need to know? But they're rarely on the cutting edge and we live on the very cutting edge of what is the most aggressive thing we could possibly do on Amazon on any day. And so understanding that, understanding the math of um, internet marketing and the math of advertising and um, was a uh, yeah was a pretty big 
was a big learning. Um, what was cool is being able to kind of like apply cross-discipline, cross-disciplinary insights. One of my favorites. So I, I worked at a, um, I, I spent two years away from McKinsey and worked at a, um, a hedge fund. It was a structured credit hedge fund. So we specialized in trading non-agency mortgages. So like post-crisis um, uh, bonds. And one of the one of the phrases that I learned there is there's no such thing as a bad bond, just a bad bond price. And in fact, the entire premise of the trade of buying post-crisis bonds was all of these bonds that we heard about in the you know the big short or the different media, they they were like distressed or you know they weren't as good because there was junk in them. The problem wasn't that they there was junk. The problem was that people's expectations were a little bit higher. So when the crash, they went and bonds are basically priced on a percentage basis. They call it cents on the dollar. And so at the start of the crash, they were up at 90, 95%. And they crashed and they went down to 10 cents on the dollar, 20 cents on the dollar. So worth almost nothing. The entire premise of the post-crisis bond trade, and I promise this is going somewhere. uh, The entire premise of the post-crisis bond trade was, buy these cheap bonds and hold them we think it's probably we think it's probably better than 10 to 20. price is probably it's not it's probably not 90 but do you know do you know what the price turned out to be of all these bonds like 80. so it was the it was it was a, an easy trade just buy buy the cheap stuff that everyone was afraid of for all these structural reasons right there's a lot of leverage that caused kind of basically bank runs and people were afraid to touch those assets. And so that logic of there's no such thing as a bad bond, just a bad price, right? 90 was a bad price. 70 or 80 was a good, was a good price. Same logic we use in advertising. There's no such thing as a bad ad, just a bad ad price. Like, I mean, there's obviously limitations to these aphorisms. Like, you know, you could advertise in a place that's really bad for your brand and so forth. But um, one of the fundamentals of, of all internet marketing that all companies should look at is how much does it cost me to convert a sale if I use this advertising format? And this is actually how we run our advertising both on Amazon, where we say, okay, there's these dozen different types of Amazon advertising and the different types of targeting. Okay, what's the best price that we can get for conversions here? And let's move the dollars there. And um, and then we, we tell our clients, hey, here's what we're getting on Amazon. How does this compare to other platforms? How does it compare to you know, the, the hot ones in the past few years, Facebook, Instagram, um, Google, TikTok? And if they're beating Amazon by a lot, we say, hey, don't give us any more budget. Like We're actually not that efficient for your business. We're, you can get a better ad at a better price elsewhere. So. That's, that's some of the cool cross-disciplinary lessons that you can get and apply to um, the new world. How can we best develop our know-how as entrepreneurs? Yeah, um, it's actually something we've been talking about a lot as an organization because um, in our, I, I think I think learning and development is super important in our world. Um, I think it's the only competitive edge that you can have.
because like our discipline is learnable. And in fact, lots of people love writing about it and giving away like how to, how to do the work. And so the only way that we stay competitive as an agency is by continuously pushing the boundaries of like our approach. We talk about um, pretty popular book and sets of books is like the growth mindset, which is, you know, fundamentally believing that, and it's not, it's not easy to believe that like, I will be better at this and I will improve my approach. And you know, the way I do it today is not how I'll do it three to six months from now. Um, and like a lot of it comes down to just like curious curiosity, intellectual hunger of like, I really want to understand how it works. And then I really want to understand, um, basically, basically you, you develop a knowledge edge and you develop also an execution edge when the parameters of the system change. you have a knowledge of the baseline that you can then adjust your approach based on those parameters changing. And so we're, we're like very internal focused in the way that we do learning and knowledge, whether that's right, right or wrong. But that, that was kind of like how, um, that was kind of like the consulting learning, which is like, I need to understand this in, entire client's business. And because like, I need to come up with insights in a week. So like, what do I need to know in order to, to, do that same thing, which is like, let's look at the baseline and imagine if we change things and then those imaginary changes could result in a different, in a different outcome. What is your business model and how do you make money? Sure. So what we do for our clients is we actually run the business on Amazon. So we, we, we take control of the entire thing, press the buttons, buy the ads and everything. So like we're almost like adding someone to your team. So um, and, and so our business model is we actually get paid on success. We get paid on sales, which is a little, which is almost like a brokerage, um, pretty, pretty modern for, for a digital format now. Um, cause like most digital agencies get paid on spend rather than sales results, but, um, our sales process, we actually do a, do very much do a consultative sale, which is we talk to a brand, um, we try to get to know their products, their brand, their positioning, how they succeed in other channels, then um, we share some information with them so we can understand the economics of their of their um, products. And we we build a go to market. We say, here's what we would sell on Amazon. Here's how much ads we would spend and here's how we'd price it. And then we use some tools that let us do category size estimations on Amazon. And we and then that therefore we say, OK, here's um, how big the opportunity is and here's how much of it we think we could get. And so the combination from that is it's very much a consultative sale. We say, here's the blueprint of what we would do on Amazon. Here's how we would do it and with what, and here's how big the opportunity is. And so at that point, it's, it's a little bit less take our word for it. And it's a little bit more, okay, here's what could be possible. And here's a work sample of how we think what it's like to work with us. So that's, that's our sales process. We actually do that for, um, probably about 300 brands a year and sign up, maybe, you know, work with uh, a quarter of those, um, you know, 
a lot, a lot of them we say, you know, it's not worth it to work with us. It, the numbers don't work. It doesn't add up. And um, yeah, for, for us, it's a, a lot of it's about timing on if the client's like in the right spot for us to work with them. And what about culture? What kind of culture does your team share? Is there a particular set of values or commitments that you comply to? How do you ensure effective communication in your team? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, uh, so we're an organization of about 60 people now. Um, and we've, we've been very deliberate in the type of culture that we drive in the organization because ultimately, um, I, I like to sometimes call cartograph the cartograph experiment because the, the experiment was one, um, could we build an organization that, um, a, a digital agency that was rewarded on results. That was experiment one, experiment number two, one. Number two, could we do this with a fully remote team, which we've been remote since 2018, since the start of 2018. So, um, and, then, and then number three, um, could we do that while doing intensely collaborative, innovative work, right? Like our work, you know, people, I think people were celebrating, uh, I think it was Shopify said like no more meetings with more than two people. We are an intense meeting culture because like, it's always a like learning from each other and figuring out um, what's the right approach. Of course, there, you need to have time for execution. And so um, we, we also, what we had to, figure, had to figure out how to do is how do you train people to work in, in our way? And, and we actually have um, developed some pretty rigorous training um, people join our organization and they go to about 40 classroom sessions in their first 60 days taught by um, an instructor and there's, um, you know, well built out rubrics and, um, you know, knowledge base with hundreds of courses in it and, um, and so forth. And we also use a pretty intense Slack collaboration culture where like every client, um, every client has its own channel, every channel has you know, manual has updates to it. And we there's certain very particular ways that we talk about um, performance and so forth. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a culture that um, didn't come about by accident. It was design of the culture was very much design of the business model, or like the success of the business model was figuring out how do we talk and how do we communicate? And um, that's, that's kind of like one of my big philosophies as a leader is like, we need to build a system that um, we could succeed on a really average day. Because if you if you need to succeed when everyone's hustling or everyone's like really putting in a ton of effort, you, it's just not sustainable. You're going to burn out. Like we need to build a system where everyone knows how to work with it, and even on a you know an okay day, um, it moves things forward. Why do you refer to to yourselves? as an agency when it's clear that your organization is much more than that. Just let me be clear. I hold immense respect for agencies and have had extremely productive conversations with top tier agency owners. However, there is far more potential than just being labeled as an agency. Yeah. Um... So, so it's, it's a funny question. I actually talked to our team about this, that, uh, that concise language is sometimes an exercise in humility. 
And, uh, and so it took, it took us a few years to say that we're a marketing agency or um, there's one, one time when we were, we were doing a, a team collaboration activity led by an outside person. They asked what we do and I told them, oh, we sell food online. Um, and so it, in part, part of it, the reason we call ourselves an agency is to put it into words that other people understand. Um, and, and fundamentally, I think the difference between us as an agency or what I'd say the difference between an agency and a consulting firm is agencies tend to execute, consulting firms tend to counsel and guide, and we do a lot of um, ex execution is the bulk of our work. Now, if you can illustrate a single success story, success tale, and give additional information regarding that assessment. What should be taken as the benchmark? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. So, um, so yeah, one I, one client example, uh, Kettle and Fire, the bone broth company, I think is the one that um, you, you were talking about. So founded by um, Nick and Justin Maris, uh, who are quite, quite successful and famous entrepreneurs. Justin's really well known in the, the marketing world, um, has written some great books about marketing. And so, um, yeah, we, we manage their Amazon. They have a catalog of a few dozen products of different types of bone broths and soups online. Um, and yeah, I, I think for, for us, our, our mandate is usually pretty simple, which is gr deliver profitable growth. Deliver, um, uh, and so with, um, with them, it's, you know, we, we took them on when they were a, a, a few million and, um, you know, have, have probably in the last year or two getting close to doubling that um, on Amazon. And uh, and so, you know, it, it, sound, it sounds successful, but, but you bring up a really great point, which is like, how do we measure success and how do you actually measure what is good on on Amazon. And so a big, a big part of that is, is we do this, we do it a few different ways. So one is really understand your category. How big is the category? How many people are looking for products on your, in the category? Kettle and Fire was a, was a company that largely rose in the keto movement um, of which, which really kind of had its peak probably 17 through 19. It's waned a little bit, still the biggest um, online diet search term, for example. Um, but uh, th that was a big place where it, it flourished. And so understanding your category can size up what you think the opportunity is and how big you might maybe should be on the platform. And I think that's very important to know macro. And you can benchmark like, how much share do I have in, the, in other places? In a grocery store, what you can use data providers. How much share do I have in a grocery store versus how much share do I have on Amazon? Okay, what do we think is realistic market share wise in the soup or bone broth or keto products category based on our product offering, our pricing, um, our relative positioning? So that's, that's one is understanding macro um, where the business is. And, and that's actually where a lot of people stop. Um, and, and actually, if you do that well, it's, it, it gets a lot of the work done. For, for us, a big part of the way that we operate our business is every 30 days, we come up with a, um, 
an aspiration for the next month. So we say, here's, here's our top line goal for the next month. Here's our spend goal. And effectively that tells us what's our pro forma P&L. What's our contribution margin for the channel. And so we then have to take this to our client and agree with them upon it, that this is the right combination of ambitious and realistic. And so one, it's a very good like client relationship building and like good to agree upon aspirations. But what's really become interesting is it's a, for me, it's one of the best tests of how well we know the business. Do we actually, if we're able to predict every 30 days within 10%, then we actually know the levers that are pushing and pulling the business. We say, okay, we've got this major sales event this holiday. We're running this promo. We've got inventory issues. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna go out of stock of certain these. That actually means we know where the business is going. And in fact, you know, with, with most consumer goods um, companies, there are always challenges like this. I'm, I'm sure you've come across in, in speaking with folks about supply chain challenges, inventory challenges, all of the above in the last couple of years. And so the test for our team is like, do we really know what's going on? And can we translate that to Amazon sales numbers? I'll give you an example. December is the funniest month to project. You come off, uh, so, so for reference, Amazon does about half of their sales in Q4. So between October, November, December. November is big because of Black Friday. December is big because of the holidays. You enter December, you're, um, you're, you've got really big velocities because of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but it's like quieting down a little bit. And then you roar into pre-Christmas and the types of products flip. In fact, if you are a better for you or healthy product, people basically abandon diets at the start of November. There's good search volume data and stuff for it. Yeah, right? It's like, look, it's a losing battle. <laughs> I'll try again in January. Um, and so uh, a different set of products starts to rise. Our clients who have gifts, who have holiday related flavors, things like that. And they rise up and then they taper and sales falls off a cliff on like the somewhere between the 20th and 22nd. This year was actually a little bit earlier because we think because of the big storm that went across America between like the 22nd and 23rd. Um, but traditionally it's usually like 21st, 22nd because people can't get holiday gifts to ship. Then on the 26th, um, New Year's resolution products start to rise again. Sales then takes a dive on the 30th and 31st because people don't shop as much on holidays. And then New Year's resolution healthy food jumps on the first. Um, I was really proud of our team. So on there, the there's first a lot to. Or on the second. On the, on on the, the first. first people, people have a lot of regret and they said, you know what? I'm drinking water. <laughs> okay. But. Um, yeah, I was, I was really proud of our team. Across our organization, we manage about $150 million in GMV annually. Um, our December projections were, were within about 1% of, of actuals. Um, but you can imagine how you really have to know your business and what to expect in order to project the exact sales number that you're going to get every month. The last point is that sometimes performance is about expectation setting like you could argue performance isn't about growth it's about it's about being able to predict and set expectations adequately and that's actually kind of one of the one of the most counterintuitive lessons i've learned in, in our world is that like performance is not about growth like some of our least some of our least happy clients have been some of the fastest growing ones because they thought fast wasn't fast enough 
Um, and so, so like really being a good, and this is kind of being a good service provider or consultant is about setting the expectations right. And if you can set the expectations right and hit them, people are very rarely going to be upset. So Chris, by the way, double results, 40% growth. How do you measure your private relationships? Since everything doubled. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your private expectations? And you have big ice cream. Yeah, the ice cream cone has grown every year by at least <laughs> two feet. So <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, the, you know, it, all of these numbers, uh, you, you learn them because they're what people like to talk about. But we really focus about execution is like the score follows, the, the numbers follow. Like if, if we can execute really well and um, do execute to our own satisfaction, then the results will follow. That's, that's kind of the, the, the approach that, that, that we try to take. It's also an approach that saves your mental well-being, your sanity. If you say, I'm just gonna do my best. Okay, and you as a leader, are you content with your life? What sort of mindset do you possess? Do you make time for yourself, for those closest to you in order to, let's say, nurture yeah. meaningful relationships? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a very happy person. I'm a very fortunate person. I, one of the things that really I credit John, my co-founder, he said, we're going to build this business Monday to Friday, normal day, length days, no late nights, no nothing. Our team works Monday to Friday. I, you know, 10 hours is, is a pretty, is like on the longer side of a day. Um, we work, we work intensely through the day, but, um, but yeah, I'm fortunate to have, like, I, I look at entrepreneurs who are my peers. I have a lot of balance. Um, and that's really important to me to be able to do it. But, um, and it's definitely possible if you just design your system around it, right? Like if, goes back to that, like, just define the solution space, right? Like we need to be able to succeed on an average day. And I think when people decide, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to do 80 hour weeks. They're betting on their ability to do that for five to 10 years. That's a tough bet. It's a really tough bet. And so we're fortunate that our business can, can work this way. Um, our, our team works very hard, but, um, but, uh, yeah, even, even myself, I get to have a lot of balance and, um, you know, enjoy living in Austin, hanging out with my family, all that stuff. Chris in five years and your company in five years. Big question. So, um, Chris in five years, uh, yeah, probably, probably start a family. I'm from a, I'm from a large family. I'm one of four kids and I have over 30 first cousins. So, and we're all very close. So. I think that's probably the next um, the next step for me. And then Cartograph in five years, I really hope that it's really, it's always been on our um, on our roadmap to have some kind of exit, whether or not, why not we, we sell to somebody. Do you consider yourself as a serial entrepreneur? Have you thought of an exit strategy at some point? Pro probably an exit, but I'd, I'd also like for Cartograph to continue to be um, a place where people can find tremendous 
personal and career growth. That's been the most exciting thing that we've been able to deliver is people come in and in two, three years can fundamentally transform their careers. If you work at or, or run a consumer brand and you're interested in running, um, in understanding the opportunity on Amazon, find us on LinkedIn, um, look us up on our website. We post a lot of content on LinkedIn actually of like our insights from the market and so you can get a little bit of a sense for our work. And then feel free to reach out, either reach out to me personally or you can um, use our contact in, on, uh, form on our website or you can email me at chris at gocartograph.com. Twenty-first Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.